A special welcome to all of those who are visiting with us today. It's good to have you with us. We've been doing a series through the book of Ephesians, and we're up to our final sermon on the book of Ephesians. Now, we all look at the Apostle Paul, and we think of Paul being a super spiritual, mature man of God, don't we? Yet in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, Paul specifically asks his friends in Ephesus to pray for him. And this is his prayer. He prays that he might boldly make known the mystery of the gospel. That's what we're called to do as well. You know, we've just received the latest statistics from the Baptist Union. And last year, there were the lowest number of baptisms on record. This latest year, they've gone even lower. What is the church here for? It's to reach the lost. It's to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ boldly so that people can embrace Jesus as their Lord and Savior and enjoy eternity in heaven with God. But isn't it interesting that even the Apostle Paul needed the support, the prayers, and the encouragement of his Christian friends. He couldn't do it on his own. And neither can you, and neither can me. We need each other's support. We're a family. We're a community. We work together to reach our community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul is coming to the end of his life. He's in his 80s. And he knows that this letter that he's writing to the church in Ephesus could be the very last letter that he writes. And so let's read what he says from Ephesians 6, verses 21 to 24. One of his friends that came to visit him was called Tychicus. And he says, Tychicus... The dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Peace to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. And you'll notice in that passage the word encourage. And the Greek word that Paul uses here for encourage means to put fresh heart into people. Is there anyone here this morning that needs fresh heart or encouragement this morning? You know, back in World War II, survivors of the German prisoner of war camps, they said that you could tell when someone was going to die, when you noticed that they had lost all hope, that that hope had gone from their eyes. It had nothing to do with how gaunt or how wasted they looked or how difficult the conditions it all depended on whether their hope was alive. When hope died, it was only a matter of days before the person died. We can put fresh heart into people by encouraging them. 
So Paul's letter to the Ephesians was written at an extremely discouraging time for Christians. Paul's imprisonment signaled the start of persecution that continued to increase. Emperor Nero, the Roman emperor at the time, blamed the Christians for fires in Rome, while other people believed that it was actually Nero that had started the fires himself. And so Christians were seen as a scapegoat, and they were treated extremely poorly. Many were covered in tar and set alight as lampstands in Nero's gardens. Others were wrapped in the skins of freshly killed animals and thrown to starving dogs. Still others were thrown to the lions in the Colosseum. And this persecution continued for 250 years. New Zealand next year will have, it will be 250 years since Captain Cook discovered New Zealand. And over that 250 years, migrants have come to New Zealand from England and they've settled towns and cities. Just imagine that sort of persecution going on for 250 years. You'd give up hope. You'd think, well, hang on, God. Uh, what am I trusting you for? Life is miserable. It's easier not to be a Christian. I can, if I say I'm not a Christian, I'm not going to be persecuted and I can live a more comfortable life. When uh, we were in Turkey, we went to a place called Cappadocia, which was where Christians went to hide from the Romans. And there were all these caves that they used to hide in. We went into one cave that was 20 levels underground, and over a 1,000 people lived in that cave. They had special water supply and they could open vents to allow air to circulate. But when the Romans were in the area, they went underground and they had to hide in fear of their lives. Now you might be thinking, well, thank goodness that that sort of thing doesn't happen today. But it does. There's much persecution in many countries around the world. I read of a woman who was interrogated by police in a remote region of China. She was tortured with beatings and electrical shocks. Even when close to death, she refused to disclose the names of the people in her congregation or to sign a statement renouncing her Christian faith, even though she could hear her son in the next room who was also being tortured. People whose only crime is worshipping God were burned with cigarettes and beaten. As a result of their faithfulness, though, tens of millions of Chinese now embrace Jesus Christ. The church is said to grow by the blood of the martyrs. A martyr is someone who gives their life for Jesus Christ. And the word martyr means witness. By suffering, martyrs bear witness to the truth of the gospel. If you're prepared to give your life for something, that means you really believe that that is true. And so for people to be persecuted and not to deny their faith because they believe in Jesus and they know that when this life ends, the real life, life eternal, 
begins. It's when people see that sort of seriousness among Christians that people know that there's something real, there's something true, there's something worth hanging on to. The catch cry of the early church was Maranatha, and that means, come, Lord Jesus. Often these people thought that their only hope was for Jesus to come and take them out of this pain and suffering that they were enduring. And this is still the cry of the persecuted church today. If we analyse the prayers of the early church, we find that they very seldom prayed for themselves. They didn't say, God bless me and give me a nice new house and a good job and a nice car. They prayed for boldness and courage to share the gospel. Have a look at these verses from Acts chapter 4. It says, On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Now, Lord, consider the threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Here's a, a place where there's intense persecution. The authorities have said, don't you dare talk about Jesus in this town. But they asked God for courage to declare his truth, to declare his word. Our personal circumstances here in New Zealand are very different, aren't they? People are more prosperous. We have improving health and safety regulations. Yet, strangely, depression is on the increase. Many highly developed so-called Christian countries have alarming suicide rates. Paul sent Tychicus because he didn't want these people to lose faith and give up. He wasn't able to promise that everything would turn out well. And as we know, things actually got a lot worse. So how do we encourage people when things are not likely to get better? A friend tells us that he's got a terminal illness. And our instinct is to say, Look, I'm sure everything's going to be okay, but we know that that's not always going to be true. I used to find it difficult as a high school teacher when sometimes you had some really good students in your class, but they weren't particularly bright, and they had really high goals. They wanted to be a doctor or a lawyer, and you knew that what they were wanting to achieve was beyond them. And so you'd give them extra lessons, You'd prepare them for exams, but some of them wouldn't succeed. And sometimes you had to sort of have that chat where you're realistic with them about what they can achieve in life and, and what their dream and passion and ambition should be. And then you'd get the opposite situation where you'd get a really bright person who was underachieving. And in the old days, uh, university entrance was accredited. And so the brighter students didn't have to sit the exam, but the ones that weren't accredited had to sit the exam. And one day I had a guy in my class who I knew was very bright, but he hadn't been accredited. 
And he came to me and he says, oh, Sue, it's my own fault. You know, I've just been sort of partying all year and I thought I'd done enough to get through, but I'm going to have to sit the exam. How can you help me? And I said, look, take these four case studies and you can apply them to four different questions in the exam. And if you know them well, you'll get through. So he goes off and he sits university entrance and he passes. And when his marks came through, he'd got 76 for geography, which was my subject, 50 for English, 45 and 46 for his other two subjects. He needed a total of 200 marks. But I could see the potential in that guy. I could encourage him and he got through that exam. And that was a wake-up call for him because he realised that he could achieve much more than he was at that particular time in his life. I get really excited when I see people in the church develop in an area of giftedness. It's been really good to see Ken Smith as a regular teacher at our senior service. We have a service for older people on a Wednesday and Ken hadn't done a lot of preaching in the past but he's a very good teacher and everyone loves the word that he shares. And others have grown in this area as well. When we encourage, enable and empower people, they are able to step up and do exciting things. It's really good to look at potential in people and see that potential realised. You know, each year we should become more Christ-like and capable than we were the year before. We should each be able to examine ourselves and say, have I grown spiritually in this last year? Am I more Christ-like than I was at this time last year? Am I using the gifts that God's given me? Am I growing as a mature believer? And I still believe that home groups are the incubator for a steep growth curve. If you want to be used in ministry, get part of a small group. Because in a small group, you learn those that EQ, those social skills, how to get on with people, how to understand people, how to encourage people through a difficult situation, how to share and get other people to be transparent. And so make that effort to get involved in small groups in the year ahead. William Arthur Ward wrote the following. He said, Flatter me and I may not believe you. Criticise me and I may not like you. Ignore me, and I may not forgive you. Encourage me, and I will not forget you. Can you remember someone who has encouraged you at a vital time in your life? I remember as a, as a teenager, I used to go to Boys Brigade, but I was a bit of a delinquent, I'm afraid. I would go along and just sort of act up and make things fairly difficult for the leaders, and one day the captain of my boys' brigade company he came up to me and he said, Martin, uh, we've decided that we're going to make you an NCO. That means I was going to be responsible for a squad of boys in that boys' brigade. And then he looks at me and he says, some of the other leaders didn't think you were up to it, but I know that you won't let me down. 
Now, after he said that to me, I thought, gosh, I'm not going to let him down. That was a turning point in my life. I became responsible. I wanted to please that guy. I was pleased that he believed in me. And I've used the same line with other people as I've grown and matured in my life. But the interesting thing was, Bill Duncan was the name of my captain at Boys Brigade. And his son, Rodney, was about five years ahead of me um, at King's High School. Four years ahead. And um, one day I saw Rodney at Baptist, and Rodney went on to become a Baptist minister. And I saw Rodney at Baptist Assembly a few years ago, and I uh, had heard that his father had died, and I told him what I just shared with you about his father. And he looked at me and he said, You know, Martin, I went to an Easter camp where your dad was the speaker at Pleasant Valley in Dunedin, and it was because of your dad and that camp that I gave my heart to the Lord. So here, his father helped me and my father helped him. But we can encourage people and we can speak life into people and we can see people grow and develop. So Paul moves from encouragement to focus on God's love, God's peace, God's faith and grace in verses 23 to 24. He says, Peace to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Now, in those verses, Paul lists four gifts. And these four gifts from God provide the basis for encouragement regardless of the circumstances. In spite of the oncoming trials and difficulties that the Ephesians were to experience, God's faith, God's peace, love and grace was available to each one of them. No one can take those four things away from us, no matter how much they persecute us. You know, there's people here in our congregation this morning who are battling serious illness. And we offer them those four things, our love, our hope, our encouragement, Yet, there's a feeling that that's not enough. I've encountered hurting people who fully understand God's peace, his love, his faith, and his grace. People who have absolute confidence in God for their eternal future. Isn't it incredible that if we don't know what life holds, we can focus in on God's love, God's grace. God's peace, God's hope, his faithfulness. Those things cannot be taken away from us. You know, according to research, an average person's anxiety is focused 40% on things that will never happen. So almost half of the things that you worry about aren't even going to happen. 30% on things about the past that can't be changed. 12% on things about mostly invalid criticism. Someone says something to us and says, oh, you know, I heard this or this is going to happen. But 12% of the time, what they're saying is not true. 
10% of people's worries is about health, and our health, health gets worse with stress. Only 8% is on real problems that they will encounter in their lives. That means that 92% of our anxieties can be relieved by just a word of encouragement. It's not enough just to talk about encouragement. We need to practice encouragement. We all realise the importance of encouragement, but how do we become encouragers? Paul probably found that encouragement was difficult for him because naturally gifted people often find it difficult to understand the struggles that ordinary people go through. Paul had never married. He didn't have children. And often it's our wives and our children that can rub some of the rough edges off us. Paul was also extremely self-disciplined. In many ways, he'd have found it difficult to identify with the difficulties that ordinary people have. Our environment, our circumstances, our relationships, they all shape our character and our personality. Now, John Mark wrote Mark's Gospel in the Bible, and he went on a mission trip with Paul and Barnabas <clears throat> on their first missionary journey. But when things got tough, Mark pulled out. And later, he wanted to rejoin Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas was keen to have him back, but Paul wouldn't hear of it. Paul and Barnabas argued. Things got tense, and they went their separate ways. Twelve years later, John Mark flourishes, he matures, and he writes the Gospel of Mark. Then the relationship between Paul and John Mark was restored. Mark even visited Paul in prison in Rome. And in Colossians 4 verse 10, Paul spoke very warmly of John Mark. I wonder if Paul reflected on how quick he'd been to dismiss Mark. Maybe he thought to himself, gosh, I got it really wrong about that guy. He's done really well. I should have gone easier on him. And it's incidents like this that made Paul less harsh and more encouraging. The difficulties that Paul endured would also have softened him up over time. There's a wonderful verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, where it says, he comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When others are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort that God has given us. You know, I've got to tell you that with my um, second daughter losing her baby this year, um, that was a real wake-up call for me that I'm a lot more empathetic and sympathetic in those areas than I was. I didn't understand how emotionally upsetting it was. And we go through hard stuff so that we can then identify with people in their grief and in their difficulty. 
So to close, I, I need to answer this question. How do we become an encourager? Are you an encouraging person? First of all, <clears throat> focus on improvement, not perfection. We're all on a journey. Life is a process. We're all imperfect. We all have blind spots. Let's be teachable. Let's not say, I don't have a problem with this or I'm perfect. Recognize your weaknesses. Allow God to change you. Number two, a person's effort is more significant than their results. Some people try really hard, but the results don't necessarily back that up. Number three, show that you trust and believe in the person. Look for the treasure in a person. Look for the potential. Number four, mistakes should not be regarded as failures. The All Blacks beat Japan last night, and Bowden Barrett is one of the most brilliant first fives in the country. But he takes risks. And sometimes the risk doesn't play off. There's an intercept and the opposite team scores a try. But they don't want him to play safe. They recognise that the strength of the All Blacks is their creativity and the fact that they can make these calculated, take these calculated risks and that's what makes them so good. But we can legislate behaviour and destroy a person's creativity. We've got to give people opportunities to grow. Number five, take away the stigma of failure. Number six, failure stimulates special effort when there's hope of eventual success. If you fail, then maybe you'll try harder next time and maybe you'll succeed the next time. Number seven, motivate, encourage and lead rather than push and shove people. You can lead people, but as you especially in Kiwi culture, if you start pushing people and telling them what to do, then they won't like it. Don't micromanage people. Don't give them a whole list of how they've got to do something. Allow them to use their own creativity and then they will enjoy it more and they will develop through the process. Number eight, be aware that discouragement is contagious but so also is optimism. We create an atmosphere around us. Does this church have an atmosphere of encouragement? Do we encourage each other? Is this a feel-good experience? When you go home after a service, do you think, that was really good, I'm so glad that I came today? Or is it discouraging? We want to encourage we want to grow. We want people to embrace each other and bring the best out of each other. Number nine, recall your own struggles and weaknesses. Allow them to give you humility and gentleness. And finally, 
make a conscious decision to look for things to praise and encourage in others. You know, sometimes I see people get into critical mode where instead of looking at the good in a person, they're trying to find fault in a person. They'll analyse every single thing that person does and if someone puts a foot out of order, gets something wrong, they will pounce. They'll overlook all the good things that that person is doing and they'll shine the light on that one thing that they get wrong. Philippians 4 verse 8. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honourable and right. Think about things that are pure and lovely and admirable. Is that you? Is that the sort of person that you are? Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. A study found that for every, every criticism that we make of a child or a teenager, we need to find seven things to praise to wipe out the negative impact of that criticism. So we should be encouraging seven times as much as we're criticizing. And so Paul's friend Tychicus, he's mentioned only five times in the Bible. But look at how he's described each time he's, he's mentioned. He's described as being a dear brother, a faithful servant in the Lord, a trustworthy messenger, an encouraging example. He was humble and dependable. Here's Paul who's been beaten up, shipwrecked, stoned, rejected, thrown in prison. But Paul could still depend on Tychicus. Some of us have special spiritual gifts that are not very common. But every single one of us can be an encourager. Imagine if you became known for your words of encouragement just like Tychicus was. The Holy Spirit may place someone's name on your heart that he wants you to speak to, to text, to email, to encourage. Imagine if each one of us encouraged at least two different people each day. Encouragement is one of the greatest gifts that we can give to another person. Our words can help a person who's feeling hopeless to keep on living. They can motivate a sick person to fight an illness and to get well. Encouragers are God's front line against defeat, despair and depression. Ask God for the right people to share with and the right words to say. Proverbs 10 verse 32 The lips of the godly speak helpful words. We're going to enter a time of communion now. And so as we come into this time of communion, let's focus on the love, grace, and forgiveness of Jesus. Jesus' blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sin. Jesus gave his life so that we can live. The deepest source of encouragement comes from the character and nature of God. No matter what life throws at us, we have the hope of an eternal future with our Lord. Thank Jesus this morning as you take the bread and the wine. All those who have trusted Jesus as their Saviour and Lord are welcome to join with us
this morning. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have given us a hope and a future. That because of what Jesus has done, we can look forward to eternity with you. Lord, help us to be encouragers. Help us to put our critical spirits aside. Lord, those people that desperately need affirmation and are, are doing so much around us, Lord, may we acknowledge what they're doing for us and how we appreciate them. Lord, be close to us as we take the bread and the wine this morning, as we thank you afresh for your loving sacrifice for our sin. In Jesus' name, amen.